Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome in. Happy May, happy Monday, and uh, greetings and thanks for joining me for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, which, of course, is the world's number one podcast about banjos and the people who love them. The podcast is brought to you in part by our great friends and sponsors over at Peghead Nation, Sullivan Banjos, and Elderly Instruments. But the real lifeblood of this show is you, the listener. And today we have a very special Patreon supporter of the show. That's Shane Benfield. And Shane is a Hall of Honor patron, which of course is the highest honor bestowed upon civilian listeners. Shane, thank you so much for supporting the show. I really could not do it without you and the other patrons of the show. For those who haven't heard, you just have to go over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Sign up to uh, toss just a few dollars per month over my way, and it really does help keep the show running. And you do also receive amazing benefits in return, such as being invited to our monthly video meetup, the VIP lounge for very important pickers. And you get free music, free tablature, lots of other perks. So once again, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. One other announcement before we get to the show. Uh, this is actually story time. So gather around a long, long time ago when, when your pal Keith here, uh, used to live in Lansing, Michigan. I was in a band with a mandolin player named Alan Epstein, and we did a lot of fun gigs together and stuff. But uh, one of the coolest things that we did was we taught a seven-week bluegrass ensemble class, which basically takes students who maybe didn't have jamming or performing experience and made a band out of them and, and even ended in a performance. Well, Alan now lives in the Saratoga Springs, New York area, and he is rebooting the Bluegrass Ensemble class. So here's a little pitch to anybody who lives in that area. Cafe Lena is presenting his Bluegrass Ensemble class, and that's going to start June 7th. And I will include a link for more information and how to sign up for that class in the show notes. So check that out, and I can tell you firsthand it will be a great experience. Alan is a wonderful instructor and a good friend of mine, so make sure to tell him I said hi if you end up attending. Other than that, please email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com or head over to banjopodcast.com to get a hold of your world-famous Picky Fingers official logo t-shirts and stickers.
Today we have a freshly picked episode looking at the new release from Ryan Kavanaugh titled Ryan Kavanaugh Screams Electric. Now if you need more background information on who Ryan Kavanaugh is, you can travel way back to episodes 10 and 11 where I uh, featured Ryan Kavanaugh in an interview that I did with him way back. That was almost five years ago. But uh, this is a new album of his, and for those of you who know about Ryan and his playing, uh, this is Pedal to the Metal Electric Banjo Wizardry, just as the name suggests. And I was also happy to not only profile this album, but catch up a little bit with Ryan in general. Like I said, it had been five years. So he gave us a little taste of some other things that he's been up to. And of course, we dove deep into the making of this new recording of his, which for those of you who are willing to go a little beyond the uh, bluegrass paradigm, shall I say, uh, I think you'll be really impressed with what he came up with. So here with me to discuss his new recording, Ryan Kavanaugh Screams Electric, it's Ryan Kavanaugh. Make him welcome, folks. So, Ryan, how's it going, man? Good to see you again. It's going great. It's great to be back here. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah, we were actually just just talking off mic or whatever, off air, whatever you want to call it about how uh, I just looked it up and it, it's been nearly five years since you've been on the show. So I guess, first of all, you know, we're, we're going to dig into this new recording of yours, but uh, let's just get started. Get everyone caught up on like what the heck you've been up to the past few years and what's your current <laughs> playing situation. And uh, yeah, just get us caught up with what's been going on with you. That's a really big question. Um, <laughs> yeah. Five years ago, I, I was really lucky I listened to the end of the last podcast that we did. I was helping just then get Songs from the Road Band started with my friend <laughs> Charles Humphreys. Uh-huh. And uh, that was an experience. That was a, a year on the road. I think right before that, I was with Jenny Lynn Gardner for eight months. And then I was with Jeff Austin for a year before that. So... Mm. I finished the year with songs from the road band with a recording on their full length record, waiting on a ride. It's on Spotify now. Uh-huh. Uh, really happy with uh, what we did. They, those guys write great songs. They write songs with people like Sean camp and other Nashville uh, notable writers who I can't yeah. remember off the top of my head, but the songs are very well crafted. They just have the connections for that. We recorded at a really nice studio in Asheville, North Carolina, in an old church. Hmm. And uh, the recording came out phenomenally. Yeah, songs from the road band, Waiting on a Ride. So that's where we ended last. I can't remember if that was 2018 or 2019 off the top of my head. The the podcast interview was 2018. And as you acknowledged, I think we were both sounding a little younger. Yeah, and uh, over COVID, I played, let's see, I went to New Orleans to record this new record. And while I was there, I recorded on Jeremy Garrett, uh, his new record, Jeremy Garrett from the infamous String Dusters. Sure. And uh, I think Barry Bales is on some of the tracks I'm on. I know Cody Kilby's on a lot of them. Um, I played on about half the tracks on that record and really loved it. Did some tour dates with Jeremy, which is an absolute pleasure. I mean, I get to play with him and Cody Kilby. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> yeah, I wish I could have seen some of that. That sounds great. Yeah, and a bunch of other, I, I think, uh, 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 I mean, it's just off the top of my head. I'm nervous because I'm on a podcast, but uh, the rest of the guys were phenomenal musicians. Alan Bybee, Alan Bartram. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I hope I get to do more of that. So my bluegrass sensibilities were getting completely fulfilled from all those years, Jeff Austin, Jenny Lynn Gardner songs from the road band, Jeremy Garrett. I'm, I'm pretty happy with the work I put down. Um, yeah. I was tied up for 10 years with Bill Evans exclusively and I wasn't getting my bluegrass fix. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to get on a bunch of records and stuff. So that made me really happy to do that. Yeah, well, we're all happy to have heard you do that. So, you know, welcome back. And as, as soon as we've welcomed you back to Bluegrass, we have this... I'm out again. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, let's dive into it, man. You just you just released, or is it is it completely released yet? I know you've been putting out some singles uh, for Screams Electric. Yeah, I have a very limited amount of CDs that I printed because um, I know some people like CDs. But we're trying mm-hmm. to be good to the environment here, so we printed a lim- limited amount. We don't want any extras. <laughs> Ended right. up in trash bins. Uh, <laughs> probably lost half my banjo listening audience with the blasphemy that I'm doing with electric instruments, but uh, absolutely had to do it. So the on my website, the limited CD is available. Uh, it's mm-hmm. It's actually an EP, but the songs are like 10 minutes six minutes, seven minutes, so it's very long. Uh, right. We wanted to do one for for the hippies out there. And uh, yeah, this is yeah. our this was our psychedelic venture into electric music. Yeah, it sure is. So let's let's just dive right in, man. The first track called The Devil You Know, you know, as you acknowledged, you're kind of you're well steeped in bluegrass, but you've also kind of built a reputation as like the dude who plays crazy fusion jazz on <laughs> right. on banjo. And there's definitely some fusion elements, but to me, this sounds way more like like a Jimi Hendrix Band of Gypsies kind of track. Right on. I had some artistic constraints for myself on this record, and the record Mm -hmm. came about in just a really crazy way. Um, I didn't expect to get this, to ever document my psychedelic sensibilities uh, with 70s fusion on a record, 
And so it goes back to a drummer, phenomenal drummer from New Orleans named Doug Belote. Mm -hmm. And when I was playing with Bill Evans, Soulgrass, this guy contacts me on Facebook, Doug Belote. I went to his Facebook to look, who is this guy? He's awful friendly. Well, he was playing with Jerry Douglas, hmm. you know, and uh, we were talking. He was, he was like, man, it's weird being a drummer in like a bluegrass band on all these festivals. And I was like, well, man, it's weird being a banjo player on all these <laughs> jazz festivals. <laughs> yeah. And he'd be, he was like, man, wouldn't that be cool if we were in the same band? You know, I was like, yeah, I think we talked for, we chatted. I mean, I was overseas and he was touring with Jerry Douglas and Robin Ford and I think Larry Carlton. He, he, he was with uh, Derek Truck's band when that band still existed. But we were okay. talking for 10 years. And then he wow. called me over COVID. He goes, do you want to do that record that we were talking about doing? And I, I said, uh, I just done the, my realist recording right before COVID, mm -hmm. which is all the solo... Uh, electric banjo uh, improvisations. And I was yeah. like, right, I wanted, I wanted to do a follow-up to that record. And I was like, what better than just to like do improvisations like that with a world-class drummer? Right. And just, so I was like, man, maybe I can come down to New Orleans and we can, we can just hack it out in a studio, you know? And, and up till then you had never even met the guy like in person? I think I'd met him once. Huh. He, he was in Nashville one time and he and I was there too. And he invited me over. He's like, I'm at an Airbnb. Jerry Douglas got us an Airbnb. And I go over there and there was like this great hang with Jerry Douglas and the rest of his band. And like, yeah, you know, I, I was like totally starstruck by Jerry Douglas. You know, he's one of my, <laughs> he's one of my heroes. I've never reached out to. I'm just like, I'm going to let, I'm going to let this guy be. I enjoy admiring him from afar. Yeah. And, uh, I got. I was sitting there drinking beers with the guy while he was smoking cigars. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And so that, cool. I met Doug that one time, and the second time is when we recorded this record. Amazing. The funny part about this is that I just thought it was going to be me and Doug. And like two or three days before the record date, before I fly down there, you know, we scheduled four hours in a studio at 10 in the morning, you know, mm -hmm. not my hours to work. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I would rather be at 10 p.m. But well, I'm sorry about pushing this podcast on you in the middle of the <laughs> middle of the day Eastern time. I know you're you're in uh, I'm in Arizona right now. I'm in Arizona. Yeah, I came here yeah. to be near my father after COVID. I didn't want to lose yeah. one of my parents and uh, and not be near him, so I moved out here. But um, <laughs> Doug goes like two or three days before the recording, he goes, do you want a bass player on this record? I was like, well, I thought it was just going to be you and me, but that would be, I'm not going to turn down a world-class drummer saying, you know, I know he's going to bring a world-class bass player. Yeah, well, he'd take his word for it, yeah. Yeah, well, he shows up at the studio on Monday morning with Kevin Scott, who had just got off tour with the John McLaughlin Mahavishnu Meeting of the Spirits tour. <laughs> and I'd been watching this guy, Kevin, for like a year already. And I'm like, holy crap, this guy is, I was like, I was like, I don't know what we're going to play, you know, like, give me a minute to think. And I go in, I go into the control room and I'm like scratching my head. I'm like, he brought like a Grammy winning bass player to, I, I'm not sure if that Mahavishnu or John McLaughlin had won a Grammy around 2017 or 
sometime. I'm not sure if Kevin, if that record did it, but um, he, but either know, way, he's the caliber of person who plays with those heavy cats. Yeah, yeah. and he was in Jimmy Herring's band on that tour. Oh, with it was a wow. double band tour. The both bands played the Mahavishnu stuff and traded off, and uh, Kevin's modern fusion stuff with Wednesday Night Titans is what I'd been aware of, which is incredible. If anybody hasn't seen that, him and Zach Danziger as a duo just do some incredible new music that it's the coolest thing I've ever heard. And so here's this guy, you know, looming over me with his beard and he he showed up in like a flight suit and he's got goggles on. And, and I was like, Kevin, I don't know what we're going to play. He's like, he's like, we're going to throw down, dude. And I'm like, well, I guess I better be ready to throw, to throw it in, you know, like, right. and uh, I had had a period when I was in New York City while I was playing with Jeff Austin, where I went through this like artistic thing in my head where I noticed from playing banjo on the bluegrass and jam circuit that people expect a lot of these notes to come out of a banjo, you know. Like it, it kind of wears out listeners that aren't used to it. You know, I've noticed that bombarded with notes. Like if you ask the average person, they can't tell the difference between a good banjo player and someone that's just like ripping out a yeah. bunch of random notes on one with some picks. And yeah. I went through this like lyrical phase and I was like, I could go a lyrical jazz direction or I could go a lyrical pop direction. I'd, I'd learned a bunch of, you know, pop tunes like vocal melodies. And then I started writing a handful of, you know, uh, I was like, what, what do people associate banjo with other than bluegrass and cowboy hats and coyotes singing on a fence in harmony and, and you know, yeah, that kind of thing. or something. Yeah. yeah. And they think of, you know, a lot of people have this preconception of like the swamp and the, you know, uh, the, the deep South, which there really aren't many banjos down there. And, and, uh, I was like, well, that would be like Delta Blues kind of stuff, void of yeah. modern blues licks. Uh, so I'd written a bunch of songs and named them for uh, different nefarious uh, individuals I'd run into throughout the years <laughs> and to get this dark vibe, you know, on the electric okay. banjo, this this voodoo, Jimi Hendrix. And I, I was listening to Band of Gypsies at that time. I had these songs in my back pocket, just riffs, motifs. Yeah, it's definitely swampy. Yeah. Yeah, grooves, riffs, no changes in particular, just stuff to reach, uh, reach listeners. That meant a lot to me. And it popped into my head in this impromptu recording session. Oh, you know, I got a bunch of, you know, I got a few things in my back pocket. And actually, there's like three more songs on the record that aren't released. I may release those at some point. Nice. But uh, I just said, you know, can I show you these? He's like, nah, just Kevin looks in the control room, hit record. So this whole record is improvised. Wow. We, re from, we recorded from the first downbeat. Yeah, from the first downbeat. We recorded for three hours straight and cut it up into tracks. Yeah, it, it definitely has that has that sound for sure but I didn't I guess I didn't realize the exact extent of it but that was literally walking in you know you're in the room together for the first time ever yeah and, and I, I was press record before you even run through ideas right and 
a lot of this congealed. So I'm glad I get to talk about this because I bet a lot of people that see the CD advertiser are like, why did this guy make this hard left turn? Well, because it was impromptu and I had to dig in a, a vault in the back of my head that I never thought I'd go into that drawer again. And well, I'm so, glad you did, man, because it's, yeah, it came out real cool. So in, in our little preliminary 15-minute talk before we hit record, we're talking about, I'm just like, you're Kevin Scott. I can't believe you're here. Doug Belote's in the other room. He just got off tour with Robin Ford. Oh, my God. What, what, what the hell is this dipshit banjo player here going to play? <laughs> I have this new electric banjo that my dad had just refurbed. I think I've had it for about seven years, and I wanted to make some changes to it. It took my dad about a year to make a change. And it's like a, a round Stratocaster with five strings. You know, it's pretty straightforward. But I, mm-hmm. I was playing, like, practicing uh, Pat Martino stuff on it, stuff without bends. I wasn't using the tremolo or the, the, uh, the whammy bar yet. Right. And um, in the studio, I was just like, well, I'm going to go back to my high school, college days when I was listening to Jimi Hendrix, Band of Gypsies, and mm-hmm. when I was listening to... Um, I loved, a lot of people hate it, but I love that early Miles Davis fusion. And I said, what would Herbie Hancock, how did Herbie Hancock feel when he walked into the studio that day and Miles is like, you're playing this electric piano, it's brand new, whether you like it or not. And I was like, well, that's me. I got to play this electric (laughs) banjo uh, with some distortion. I got to make it work. And it captured the awkwardness in this real gnarly way on this record and we went for gnarly sounds. I mean, intentionally. All the moments, the blood, sweat and tears are in there. You know, the, the, the nervousness I had at certain parts and we kept it and it's, it's got the, um, I like how it has the humanity of an old blues record or one of those early 70s fusion uh, escapades. Absolutely, yeah. It definitely sounds like 70s fusion and I think even like the roots of it maybe even further back to like a kind of blue vibe where where they're doing more of the one chord vamps or the the riff based right uh improv so take us inside your your mind you know you have so you have this riff everyone's going to be doing something with the riff whether they're playing it or just grooving around it right and you and you're the basically the solo instrument right in this situation uh you know someone like me starts just doing my uh my pentatonic stuff that I know, but, but you know, that's not what you do. So right. take us inside your brain. How, how, too. I did plenty of that. Um, how, how, yeah. How do you go from this riff to these sheets of notes and these really exploratory types of uh, passages that we're hearing? With what I had at the time with this instrument, I was missing my acoustic banjo or my, my other electric with the head on it that responded really well. I was like, oh, I wish I had brought that one. <laughs> and I had to make do with this. I couldn't fly with two banjos. So I, I came up with some quick rules for myself. I'm like, no guitar licks, uh, no cliche guitar licks. If I use rolls, I'm going to use them on a, a crescendo of a solo or in a good passing phrase, I'm going to strategically place these in my improvisation, but I'm not going to use rolls because it's typical. I'm going to try to get sounds out of this thing. I wanted to sound like 
uh, on the rest of the track, the first one I was trying to sound like Jimi Hendrix meets John McLaughlin. Mm -hmm. um, but the rest of the tracks, I was thinking about some uh, deep cuts on like uh, Live Evil, uh, Miles Davis, uh, In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew, On the Corner. I was just mm -hmm. trying to think. John told me that when, when he was in the studio to do those recordings, it was often impromptu and the whole band was like, oh man. Geez, he just recorded the sound check and he's going to release that, you know? And I, thought, I, always, <laughs> I always thought that was pretty slick how Miles did that. He pulled one over on these guys. <laughs> but I, I asked, I, and I think John says this in some interviews, but, you know, how did you play the way you did on there? He goes, Miles came up to me and said, I want you to play the guitar like you don't know how to play guitar. I've heard that quote before. I love it. Yeah, yeah. So I played this electric banjo like I don't know how to play electric banjo uh, <laughs> because I, I really didn't. I, you know, this is something the electric banjo up to that point, I had been thinking for five years on this solid body electric banjo. What do I want to play on this thing? Like, you know, I can do anything a guitar, I can sound anything like any guitar. Mm -hmm. But and and any era with any pedal, but it's a banjo. Like, so I'm not going to play guitar licks, of course. And uh, I kind of went from there with it. Like, you know, I'm going to play this electric banjo like I don't know how to play it because I really don't. And I was tap dancing on pedals. I brought a bunch of pedals with me, and uh, I was stacking gain. And I got some really gnarly sounds out of. Uh, a Maris Enzo synthesizer pedal that I was using. It's a great pedal. All the weird effects you hear on there, pads and and uh, different things were on there. But sometimes I left the pedal on by mistake and it was like stacked distortion running into mono synth and it just got a really gnarly sound. On that first song, there's a lot of that. I was thinking that was a whammy pedal. Is that the is that the synth? Oh, the, yeah, there's a whammy pedal in there too. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then at one point the hold on the synth, the the power in New Orleans is funky. Hmm. It, it because of all the hurricanes there. Well, whatever outlet I was plugged into, that Maris Enzo was really um finicky. And huh. the hold on on the song Triple Loser, the hold when I strummed a chord you know, like holding yeah. down the keys on a keyboard and it held yeah, it goes for, for like a few minutes. Yeah. It <laughs> held for too long. And I was like, how am I going to turn this thing off? So there's a lot of knob turning um, and experimentation to get that to go off that ended up on that track. Um, <laughs> I was also inspired by Jack White. He's like, man, if you aren't fighting the instrument, you aren't getting any humanity out of it. Like, you know, and I was on that song, I was fighting it like a fish on a line. I was like, what the yeah. hell? And I think the rest of the band was like, man, he's really into it. I was having a rough time. <laughs> Hey folks, just need to take a quick break to tell you all about my good friends up in Lansing, Michigan at Elderly Instruments. Now you might be thinking that with Elderly's amazing selection and their fast worldwide shipping, that they are some big box conglomerate store. But no, Elderly has been family owned since 1972 and they pride themselves on giving you the customer service and personal touch that only a mom and pop store can give you. So the next time you need anything for your banjo, 
guitar, violin, mandolin, any stringed instruments, accessories, instructional materials, and I'm talking about whether you're looking for a beginner instrument or even a high-end, vintage, hard-to-find item, Elderly's going to have you covered. It's my first place that I go. So check them out at Elderly.com. And don't forget to let them know that the Piggy Fingers Banjo Podcast sent you. This podcast is also brought to you by Peghead Nation, a site that brings you streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other roots music styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in the world. Now, some of what Peghead Nation offers is a great lineup, of course, of banjo instruction. Check out these courses. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward-style banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, regardless of what course you choose, you're going to get high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes to play. Now, perhaps the best part of all this is that just by being a Picky Fingers podcast listener, you are going to get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout. That's PICKYFINGERS, all lowercase, all one word, over at pegheadnation.com. Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is proud to welcome a brand new sponsor, Sullivan Banjos. The Sullivan family has been in the banjo making business for decades and have earned their reputation for the highest quality in materials and craftsmanship. Perhaps the best part is you get the big time Sullivan tone while getting the personal customer service of a small boutique banjo custom shop. Chances are that if you can dream it, Eric Sullivan can build it. My main banjo is proof. I've been playing and loving my Sullivan Custom Banjo since 2004, and it just keeps getting better and better every day. So hop online and go to SullivanBanjos.com, email them at SullivanBanjo at gmail.com, or get a hold of them the old-fashioned way. Pick up the phone and dial 502-365-5022. And don't forget to tell them that Keith from the Picky Fingers podcast sent you. So, so any other, other than playing like you, you don't know how to play, any other advice for people wanting to get a little further out on a, like a basic blues riff? Yeah. I, oh, that's a good question. I totally went off from your original question. <laughs> Quite uh, all right. Um, I had a lot of early Indian training uh, in North Indian classical music. And actually, I died a thousand deaths before I before I released this record and an old friend of mine, we took lessons from the same tabla teacher, uh, Chris Johnson, a great tabla player, great studio engineer. He was like, I let him hear it. I said, should I release this? He's like, oh, you should absolutely release this. He heard my, what do you call it? You fall back on your intuition. He heard all my intuition from all, from those days when we were playing in Hindu grass. Mm. And uh, he really liked it. And that's the guy that gave me the green light on this. Are, are you able to demonstrate something you learned and the way that learning something from a tabla teacher comes out on banjo? Yeah, and what was interesting, and I, I hadn't used much of this, this whammy bar on this banjo. Um, so it, it all came out with the whammy bar. 
You know, a lot of it's pentatonic scale type stuff. Stuff that I yeah. was never able to do on the acoustic banjo. I, I would practice uh, sliding and stuff. On the acoustic banjo, but it, it's really noisy and it doesn't really work. I've done some of that in a studio setting on an acoustic and, you know, with some coconut oil on my fingers. Right. Not necessarily a banjo thing. I guess it 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 works on a banjo because the banjo has this Middle Eastern construction, this ancient, you know, the head on it and the, the membrane and the bridge, everything. But um, the first time I ever did it with a whammy bar was on this recording. I don't think I don't think I'd done it before. And it's really fun to do. I mean, it, it's addictive. I'm really happy my dad made that whammy bar upgrade on this. Um, in case anybody has a whammy bar on their banjo uh, or a guitar, if you take out the stock fender pot metal block that the bridge is attached to and you replace it with solid cast brass, hmm. it makes the intonation a lot better and it doesn't go out of tune as much. I don't know why, but Eddie Van Halen figured that out. Interesting. Yep. Very so, cool. And yeah, it's a, it's a subtle thing, and I, I imagine a lot of banjo players haven't thought much about it, because why would you? But yeah, <laughs> there's, you? There's, exactly. a, there's a difference in, you know, you can bend a note, but when you bend, there's only one way for the note to go. It's up, and with a whammy bar, it's kind of the opposite. You're, you're bending it downward. Right. So kind of using those two techniques in conjunction is the way to get a lot of those really weird fluctuations with with the note yeah and on the latest uh single the one that came out this this past week uh screams electric part one i use a lot of the whammy bar on there and after my whole whammy bar uh flailing you know screams when i was screaming electric yeah. the banjo went out of tune and i fell back on the old the old indian sarod thing where like if you go back and listen to Ali Akbar Khan or uh, mm -hmm. Ravi Shankar, you're going to hear a lot of like droning at the beginning of the recording. You're going to hear a lot of like. That's them tuning, right? Hmm. So I got yeah. done with the scream, screaming electric with whammy bar, you know, uh, you know, why is the world like this over COVID section? And my banjo was out of tune and I just had to play it out, you know, and I liked, I liked how it, again, I'm using the word gnarly, but I like how gnarly it was. <laughs> yeah. 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 That first thing on a lot of those Indian recordings is like that. Is that all the sympathetic strings that they're yeah they just strumming? they strum them and they try to get them yeah. in that fifth string the whammy bar doesn't like the fifth string at all 
No. And so uh, I also came up with some concepts from doing that, but I bent my whammy bar up. So now when I play in the, the three-finger banjo position, I'm holding the whammy bar in, under my palm the whole time. Like a, Ah, okay. So all it takes is like a little kind of yeah. wrist action to, to get some of that. That kind of deal. It's a little out of tune now, but it sounds no, cool and gnarly. Cool. I, I guess we've sort of taken a few tangents, but to go back to the record, yeah, the next two tracks are the self-titled Screams Electric Part 1 and 2. You kind of just mentioned it, but what was the the idea behind calling it Screams Electric? It was... I was looking for some classic names too, but also when we all met down there, we were like, wow, what crazy times we're going through in the world, you know? It's like, and that's kind of where we arrived. We were like, oh, it's kind of like the late 60s again. This is crazy. And then that's what got us to talking about our love for, you know, early 70s Miles Davis and why him and Jimi Hendrix and so many others did what they do, the consciousness revolution. Now, we were like, wow, this feels like a second consciousness revolution. And I said, I want to play something really conscious on here. A lot of people will call it psychedelic, but it's to me, it was meditative. We weren't on any drugs. We were on like espresso. <laughs> right. It was 10 in the morning after all. It was 10 in the morning. No drugs at 10 in the morning. And I still didn't answer your question before. Pentatonic scales, <laughs> diminished fragments, um, trying to make the blues not sound blues. I, I would start on the, um, instead of playing a minor pentatonic off the root, I'd start off the fifth, right, or the third. Huh. And uh, just kind of going on trying not to make stuff sound typical on all these tracks. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I will have to try that. And then, so on, on Screams Electric Part 2, I, I know you said you only took one banjo, but we have some acoustic banjo sound on that. Is that this one through an acoustic synth or was that an overdub or how explain yeah, so, this acoustic banjo sound so on the second half of the record i did put in some overdubs after the fact um there were some ideas that i played on there that like i said i was pulling from a drawer that i never knew i was going to pull from uh -huh. and some of the stuff i had in my head these little um pre-written transitions or motif in the middle of the song to play unison with like a horn section or a keyboard or a, uh, yeah. a, a saxophone by itself. And then I, I got the, the idea, I was like, wow, you know, the banjo players are not going to be expecting an acoustic banjo to be on any of this. I'm going to put it on. And I kept uh -huh. first takes. Uh, I put a keyboard player on there, my friend Roger Tipping fantastic keyboard player, perfect guy for me to put on there. I kept his first takes. He plays in the Bill Evans piano player style jazz. Mm -hmm. And I put him on Fender Rhodes on this record and directed yeah. him before his take. And it, it came out really nice. So I wanted it to sound like, even though I was overdubbing acoustic banjo on myself, it sounded like we were all together in the studio yeah doing it yeah. live so so triple loser i think that's definitely a, a really great example of what you just said about your your keyboardist interacting with people in a really organic way and and starts out kind of riff based but he get he does use a lot of like jazzier yeah uh, 
harmonies and, and, and textures. I was like, play like Herbie Hancock on it. He's like, I don't know how to play like Herbie Hancock. I was like, think. I, get, I gave him a short little music lesson on, on uh, uh, what do we call it? Um, harmony. Uh, I just saw Wayne Shorter. They call it like non-related harmony or they have a word for it like that. Negative harmony? No, not negative harmony. It, it was like non-functional harmony. <laughs> okay. So I gave him a a little lesson on some chord voicings and and uh, he nailed it in the first take i mean on a midi piano so what is it Sh- share the share the wealth here is there is there so, something that's usable for banjoists just kind of a different way of approaching you know the movement of the 251 in in jazz is a real popular one you know sure right but when you start altering the scales and the chords Uh, right, so I extrapolated on this basic. He's a piano player, so he knows a lot more theory than I do. But yeah. chords based on the pentatonic scale, um, f- stacks of fourth intervals. It doesn't sound good with distortion. You turn that off. You know, stuff. And I wrote some chords uh, in the middle of the song, or in, in the middle of the one of the sections and took it really out, kind of showed him how to do that. Uh, but R- Roger, phenomenal piano player. He ended up sounding exactly the way I envisioned a keyboard player to sound on the record because... He was an acoustic piano of the the 50s, 60s, early 60s pedagogy of Bill Evans, the genius piano player, and I was making yeah. him play outside of his wheelhouse, and he he fit in perfectly. So yeah, yeah, he sounds really good. Yeah, so I I had to have little splashes of that in there. A, a lot of the that song "Triple Loser" was written based on like a James Brown groove but it was also inspired by Beck. I was listening to Beck at the time in like 2015 when I was living in New York. And uh, okay. it, it has just that like. Just, uh, that's all I had was an A part and a, uh, a B part and everything else was just, we winged it. That was the song that I felt I had it most together for. 
I think that does play out because there's a, a really nice long, I don't know if you'd call it a space jam, but just kind of a more of an open jam section mm-hmm. with a really great build. I mean, I guess the next thing I would love to hear you talk about is when, when you know you're going to have a breakdown like that and need to build it up over the course of several minutes, mm-hmm. what's going through your mind for that? Or how do you approach building a, a solo or an instrumental passage so that it has that arc that you want? Exactly that. I want to tell a story over this. And, and a lot of it is intuition from having to take long form solos with Bill Evans. Um, sure. And it, with Jeff Austin. I mean, I would be given as much time as I, I was encouraged to take 20 minute solos, you know. And you, you really have to be coy at the beginning of one of those. There, there's a couple strategies uh, for doing that. It's an emotional buildup for the listener a lot okay. of the time. And I didn't want to be. Uh, predictable with what I did, but my rhythm section on this record is what I'm, what I was really excited about. I'm like, man, these guys, they read my mind. Hmm. I mean, really, we were all watching each other, but it's like they read my mind when I played down. I started out really coy and in like a long section, and then, you know, you build it up to a crescendo and then kind of break it back down. So it is like you're telling a story, intro, beginning middle end right and it did i think it did that like two or three times in that song yeah i think you're right and we left i was going to edit it to be shorter but i mean i thought about all the people i mean i started out my banjo career playing for the hippies when i started out my career playing for money um, when I was 18 years old and allowed to go to bars i had a deering crossfire and a power trio the Flectones and Fish were touring together at the time. It was, you know, so we got thrown in with the tie-dye bands. And uh, they've been good to me throughout these was years. Was that Space Station Integration? That was it. Space Station Integration and okay. Ryan Cavanaugh Trio. And uh, gosh, I, I remember this guy. He's such an influence. Uh, in Williamsport, I think it's Williamsport, Pennsylvania, this guy named Bart Robinson. He showed up to my gig. He looks like an old wizard. And he would bring Mahavishnu posters for me to sign just because I knew John McLaughlin. Wow. And so this record goes out to people like him. I know so many of them. And, uh, we and wanted, these are like vintage posters, like from shows in the 70s yeah, or from something? Like like McLaughlin, from Mahavishnu playing his high school in the 70s. <laughs> wow. You know, That's incredible. He was already signed by the band. He wanted me to sign. He's like, you're the only person I know that knows you know, John McLaughlin personally. And so these old wizards like this have been really good to me throughout the years. It's really nice to play somewhere and see people you've known for a long time. And uh, I wanted to, to play, you know, this psychedelic record is, is for a lot of them. I mean, you, you mentioned that Kevin had just come off of tour with, uh, Mahavishnu Meeting of the Spirits tour. Was it okay? I, I knew it was McLaughlin something. I couldn't remember the name of the of the tour or whatever. And you you are kind of self admittedly a McLaughlin protege. <laughs> uh, do you, and you you said he was reading your mind. Do you think maybe that had something to do with it? That he was hearing something familiar in your playing that he had already been exposed to quite a bit. There's yeah. There's something really special about about having met and played and befriending someone like John McLaughlin. I, I can imagine the only thing cooler would be like 
befriending Miles Davis and having him give you advice. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, I think like three months into COVID, I just get this call in the middle of the night from France and it's John McLaughlin. Hey, are you all right? Yeah, I'm all right. Are you starving? I'm like, kinda. You know, he's like, he's like, are, you're not working. I mean, I'm worried about you. Should I send you money? I'm like, wow, this guy, he's a good friend. I said, no, let's talk about music for the next hour. What should I do? <laughs> and uh, I think Kevin was the same way. You know, he when he had the opportunity to play with him and go on the road with him for many weeks, which I've never been able to do with John McLaughlin, uh, Kevin just picked his brain as a, uh, as you know, a guru also. So he's been a guru to both of us. And it's yeah. it was a meeting of the spirits for us fortuitous for for Doug to bring him to the studio that morning. So, yeah, that's a that's a great uh, coincidence of phrases for what actually was happening. Yeah, and um, just Kevin's touch on the bass and how he does what he does is dripping with soul and heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy he's like uh, he's like McLaughlin or. Miles Davis or Pat Martino or Jimi Hendrix, he, he plays for blood. I mean, this guy is out to get down when he plays, and I just love that. That's something McLaughlin has told me for years. He's like, whatever you play, you know, there's got to be some blood on the floor. It's got to, he just constantly would remind yeah. me of that. So we were together and fit together like a glove. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense, I think. And then the final track, Snake Pit. Is that some slide banjo that we get on this to, to further cement the Delta Blues? Well, I put my old friend Billy Cardine on electric Moog Dobro on that. So that's oh. what you're hearing on there. Yeah. Oh, interesting. You fooled me. Okay. Yeah, I sent him that track and I said, I want you to do you know, your thing on here. And I want you to play some spacey stuff on here, but I also want you to shred at times. Uh -huh. And uh, I don't think he knew what I was going to do with it. There's a whole middle section <laughs> where he's making whale noises and stuff. And he had sent me a solo for that part. And it just, the dubstep vibe in that part was so heavy. I wanted to keep it real spacey. Uh -huh. And that's why you hear that, the one banjo phrase at the end of that where... Like I totally like uh, filter out the band. I had the our mixing guy filter out the banjo at the end, so it plays the one lick and then it filters it out with a long delay there. Okay. That song was inspired by. Now I'm going to try to say this so I don't sound nefarious, but I had run into with what I do on the banjo. Uh, I was never sticking it in anybody's face in Nashville. In fact, the whole time, the second time I lived there, I was trying to hustle together a band to do exactly what we did on this recording. And okay. I was met with indifference or some people were like, this guy's crazy. But I was like, man, you know, there, there's, that wasn't the place to, to get, there's so many great musicians in Nashville of all kinds, mm -hmm. but no one wants to go that far out, right? I had to go to New Orleans to do it. So I had that. I had written that riff to Snake Pit with a um, with a uh, Costa Rican drummer that I was playing with in New York City at the time, and I never thought I'd use it again. When I went back and listened to it, it sounded like outlaw country riff.
But at the at the time that I wrote that riff, because it was my riff writing period, whatever I was thinking at that time, I was listening to the Sahara, the Bluesmen of the Sahara. Okay. Not sure if you've ever heard that stuff, but it's sure. it's it's yeah, like really the desert the desert blues stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's really gnarly. And yeah. so I'd written that melody like that, and but when I learned it again from my old voice note. I was like, wow, this sounds kind of, I was like, wouldn't that be funny? Wouldn't, wouldn't that throw people for a loop if I took this, what sounds from, from my place, it's coming from a desert blues, but it, to everybody else, it's going to sound like, like outlaw country. Here I am in New Orleans. Let's put this dubstep bass line behind this and see what, <laughs> you know, a, a, a reggae bass line and see what this sounds like. And so, so Billy Cardine, his comping part with the whale noises and the slides on the Moog electric lap steel, I don't think he thought I was going to put that in the forefront. Sorry, Billy. Uh, he played a real shreddy solo on there, but his spacey thing sounded even better. So we made a big interlude to, to uh, uh, highlight the rhythm section and his Moog lap steel. Well, that, that's almost reminiscent of you telling us about Miles releasing soundcheck recordings as the actual record. You know, right. he, he thinks he's doing some background thing, and nope, that's <laughs> that's yep. the feature. Yeah, that's funny. And there's some cool stuff that you doubled with him too, right? Like acoustic banjo doubling. I mean, it's different because it's not sliding, but mm -hmm. uh, doubling a lot of those riffs. Did you just have to learn what he played, uh, or was yeah. that part of the composition? Uh, that was part of the composition. So I had told him okay. to play that ahead of time. And I really Got heard it. in some of those parts, I heard horns, like reggae horns. Um, but what's cooler than putting a banjo in there instead of horns? <laughs> no argument here. <laughs> yeah. So I, I liked how that, that song really came out. It, it really, especially what Kevin does at the very end of it, when he comes into this, uh, you know, this like it's curtains on the song and we're doing this one last groove and what he did there on the bass was magic at the end. Yeah. Is that underneath the, you, you have a bit of a shred fest near the end too, which is really cool. Right. There's a breakdown after that shred fest and then the band comes in full bore on the melody and what he does on bass that time at the end there was just, it makes the whole song worth listening to. great let's rewind to said uh shred fest there's even there's a, a shred fest and also like a ryan versus ryan electric versus acoustic duel oh, right. Is, right. I, tell, tell me about how you set something like that up that's got to be a little i don't know schizophrenic call and little, response with yourself you know it's, it's kind of a weird yeah. thing to do 
there was some space there. Uh, that track was actually much longer than it is on there. And so where the mm. shredding starts with me and the dobro playing, yeah. that's a big splice. And I handled that like a tape splice. Yeah, uh, just chop it. Yeah, I, I used to listen to those Miles records for the splices. Like if you listen long <laughs> enough, even Herbie Hancock Headhunters, you can hear the splice. And oh it's, yeah. It's almost Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson has some real obvious ones. Yeah, and it's also a a precursor to remixing. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's the which which is I just did a finished recording a record in uh Florida with an electronic music artist named Kind Stranger and he chops me up and uses different parts of me. So I I'm kind of get to that through this recording, but I shredded with the dobro there and then there's kind of some spots where I go back and forth between electric and acoustic banjo. And I pretended that wasn't me playing the electric solo when I overdubbed it. Mm -hmm. And I just went in and I'm playing purely off improvisational intuition. I mean, after years of doing stuff like that, I, I actually, I thought for those sections, if you listen to the John McLaughlin song, Electric Dreams, Electric Size, and this is the title track, it's a long Indian jam tune. And at the end of it, John McLaughlin takes this incredibly dynamic, uh, shreddy, almost flamenco six-string banjo solo, and it only goes for like, I don't know, 20 seconds. It's not very long. Evans used to call it seasoning. Just season it a little bit with acoustic banjo. Just put a little in here. And that's pretty much what I was trying to do. Just exploit the tone of the instrument for what it is. And, you know, get a phrase in there that that says something, you know, not just to say it, but, you know, I'm making a statement with an, an exclamation point there, so to speak. Yeah. Cool. I didn't think about it really much. I, that's just what I wanted to do. And I went in there and punched it and we left it like that because it has the, I didn't want it to sound like an overdub. You, when, even when I listen to it, I'm like, yeah, it sounds like it belongs in there. So, Oh, it totally does. You know, and, and if I, if I didn't know better than to, you know, be able to identify that it's, it's you playing both of the parts, I don't think I would have suspected that it, it, the whole album has a real raw kind of sound to it yeah i got to let go of my neurotic banjo sensibilities that i think we all have i think it's the reason that we all played learned how to play scrug style to begin with like we couldn't get enough of these numbers and 16th notes like 16th note architecture like bail of flex new record is you know he shows that he's just the archetype of that it's just we all aspire to do that on banjos. But here I had this electric banjo, didn't quite know what I wanted to do with it, and I just wanted to paint a picture, like make a mess. And uh, it felt good to do it. 
I mean, I, I died a thousand deaths and was reborn a thousand times deciding whether I wanted to put this out. And like I said, my, my fellow student in Indian music, Chris Johnson was like, you got to put this out because he heard something different in it than what I, than what my banjo brain was listening to. Nice to have some trusted objective, uh, viewpoints for sure yeah it felt i mean it felt really sacrilegious that i did this you know <laughs> and i'm sure people will let you know that yeah oh yes many have many have <laughs> i've i've heard the opinions already and you know the critics are going to be critics and uh yeah. but when it comes down to it i want to be an artist uh, in the artistic sense and i want to paint with this paintbrush that that is the banjo i want to do things with it that I like, and I'm not beholden to any, I think over COVID, I really had this revelation, like, man, I, I've recorded myself on all these bluegrass records that are out, Songs from the Road, and uh, now Jeff Austin's record from before he died, that's released. He didn't release it because I quit the band, but it's called Don't Let the Body Grow Cold. So I, I have this legacy oh. of the kind of stuff that, pleases other people online. Mm -hmm. Like all, all the Bill Evans records that I was on, uh, all the bluegrass and jamgrass stuff that I was on, all my own stuff. And COVID felt like a time where the world was really in, the penny jar was shaken up. Like nobody knew what was up from down. And uh, for some reason it felt cathartic to re to do this record, to make it live. It was, you know, screaming electric, I guess, you know, what the hell is happening in the world? Ah, you know, your, your own little form of protest, maybe. Yeah. And, uh, I, that's a document of a time in my life. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. You know, I felt like it would make more of an impact or, uh, affect more listeners positively if I released it after COVID. So I have a bunch of stuff that I recorded over COVID that's going to be coming out in the next years. Um, my nice. next project sounds completely different. It's slick and clean and it has uh, lots of synthesizers on it and beats and stuff like oh. that. So I, th I think you might've played a little, have you been working on that for a little while? I think you might've played a little of that for me uh, last time I saw you. I think um, I did. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Trying to collect a bunch of songs on that. And, um, in this phase uh, that Screams Electric was recorded, I was contacted by a guy named Frank Swart in, in uh, San Francisco. And he does this, this uh, series called Funk Wrench Blues. And uh, he sends you a track without anything on it, just bass and drums, maybe keyboard. And it's, it's some form of a blues, kind of like a, a, a you know, blues chords and, uh, arrangement, but he asked me to play on that. So Lizard Brain is the, is the single. It's called Funk Wrench Blues Lizard Brain. I guess you could type in Ryan Cavanaugh Lizard Brain, but I had done this recording with Doug and Kevin, and I liked playing all gnarly and heavy. So I bought, uh, for this recording that I did with Frank, I bought a Eddie Van Halen MXR distortion pedal and just went nuts on that track so if you want to hear the the follow-up to screams electric that single and that's already out yeah it's pretty heavy <laughs> 
I would love to talk about we we've already spoken a little bit of it, but let's let's run through the gear you used from okay. the uh, the banjo, maybe some of the the pedals. Um, yeah, wh- whatever you have to talk about, let's let's give it a rundown. Yeah, so uh, the banjo is a custom five string tunneled fifth peg. My dad loves to call it the stratosphere. He's, Ooh, that's cool. <laughs> he's a retired fabricator. He 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 likes to make funny names for the the stuff he uh, he invents. But uh, it's it's basically a Stratocaster that's round, mm-hmm. and uh, it's got stainless steel frets, and uh, it has. There is a riser under the bridge plate that brings the the uh, the string height up to eleven sixteenths. Okay. Um, so. Uh, it was so it feels as much as possible like like an acoustic banjo. Yeah, my finger picks were hitting the uh, uh, the pickups otherwise, so yeah. that was really annoying. We had a local guitar luthier here in Phoenix, an electric guitar guy. He made custom five pole piece, uh, sixty three fat strat pickups for it. Like oh, cool. Like a. Jimi Hendrix would have had in one of his stock strats, I guess. And so uh, we had to have the covers to them 3D printed. Yeah. Um, everything else is standard, just good strat stuff. I said I made, had my dad make that upgrade a brass tremolo block, which is just a huge upgrade on any Stratocaster style thing. I'm, a lot of people think that I play guitar as well as I play banjo. And I only play electric guitar enough to know how to get some sounds out of it. I know how an amp works and how gain stuff works, but when I finally had one, you know, an electric instrument like that with the banjo format, I was like, oh boy, I'm going to go deep into this. I know I'm going to be sucked into this black hole. Yeah, it's fun. Analog tube circuitry and all this, all this stuff. So I borrowed an amp. Uh, for this recording, and it was a uh, like a really expensive car amplifier that Dave Bandrowski from Banjo Studio had. Yeah, and uh, I'm pretty sure he still has. Yeah, he it. lives in New Orleans, right? Yeah, and uh, okay. that's that was my contact down there. So Dave, thank you, Dave. Dave Bandrowski, he hooked all this up. Uh, I think he was happy to get the amp back because I was in love with the amp, and I I can't <laughs> remember the name of the amp, but it had like a 17 watt potentiometer on it that that I could. I could make it dirtier or cleaner with. So I think I dialed it up to like 13, 13 watts or something like that. And I made it somewhat saturated. Uh, then I went into a, uh, a red eye preamp. We know those from the acoustic world, but they work great on electric instruments. So I went into a red eye preamp stomp box into a Moog drive pedal, mini Foger drive. It's like, okay. it's like a, God, I don't know how to describe it. It's the greatest drive pedal ever made in my opinion, but what do I know? I've only been into this stuff for like four or five years. Uh, so most of the, most of the dirt that we hear on the album, it's that pedal. It's that pedal stacked Combined on top with... of a full tone distortion pro. Oh, wow. Yeah, a full tone distortion pro, which is like a nice Swiss army knife of, of uh, distortion pedals, it'll sound about just like anything. Um, okay, it'll sound it'll sound like one of those uh, uh, what are they called Zen Drive Dumble style pedals, and it'll sound like an MXR 
uh, Eddie Van Halen distortion. I mean, it goes from one to the other. So I stacked those. I kept those dialed right in about the middle. But let's see, what else did I go into? I went from those into a Digitech Ricochet pedal, which is the whammy that you hear on there. It's just okay. a stomp box version of that whammy. Huh. And okay. when you hear me play, uh, when I take those solos and it sounds like an overdriven Fender Rhodes, I was using that whammy pedal on the octave setting. It wouldn't yeah. play both octaves yeah. like some octaves pedal to, pedals do. It only went up to like, it'll only go up to the squeaky octave or another interval or down. You can't pick down and up at the same time, like the sub and up yeah. uh, from TC Electronics. And I went from that into a Maris Enzo pedal in which I had a preset MIDI pedal for. So I had four presets. One was for the, uh, the dubstep delays that you hear and the spacey stuff. Another one was I also used that unit's harmonizer at certain parts in the song. And then mono synth used like mono square, or I used this saw, I think I used this saw wave synth on that. And I just tap danced on all those pedals for the whole recording. You know, and I, which, which one there's, there's some cool, I think it's on triple loser, that, that really cool, like slap delay at the beginning. Yeah. That's Was all that? the Maris Enzo. That's all synth slap delay. Um, yeah, all I right. had two delays programmed in there. I had a long one and a short one. Maybe that was a five preset. You know, I will, I'll buy a bunch of pedals and then I'll do a project with them and I'll totally hawk them like afterwards because I don't want to become yeah. dependent on them. <laughs> and so some of these pedals were remnants of my realist record before the, the Maris Enzo certainly was and the Red Eye preamp. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I bought the Ricochet just for this record. Mm, and uh, with that five preset, uh, MIDI preset for the Maris Enzo, that's what glitched that kept my hold, my hold cord on on Triple <laughs> yeah. Loser, <laughs> which is really funny. So what what was the purpose of the Red Eye? Was it to record a clean tone in case you wanted to like reamp something? Like yeah, what? yeah. It, okay. it, was, it was. It's just for a, a a nice boosted clean tone. Uh, as a rule of thumb, I learned with my other electric banjo that a preamp definitely is the way to go. It cleans up your signal. Um, it gives a more robust signal if you do have to go direct. So you can hear just the red eye by itself on that uh, Screams Electric, the, the, the two tracks, part one and two. That's all just most of it. When you hear the solo sounds, that's just the red eye preamp, the banjo going through that into the amp. Got it. Yeah, and I didn't mean for it to be that way. I that song I accidentally hit my bridge pickup, which I do not like on any Fender guitar except for a Tele. I mean, the bridge pickup on a Stratocaster style thing is just—I don't know—it's atrocious. A sharp. Yeah, yeah. Well, that—that's the pickup that's on Screams Electric, both tracks. Uh -huh. So that's why I went intuitively on the first half of it to the twangy Indian sounds. Mm -hmm. I realized, yeah. oh shit, it's re we're recording still and I have that bridge pickup on and I haven't selected any effects. Oh, I also went back later and uh, on that track and I overdubbed some of those delay effects on there okay. because I meant to be doing that during the recording and I didn't hit the right buttons. <laughs> yeah. Um, awesome, man. Well, well, that, you know, 
I think we covered everything pretty well, but is there anything I forgot to ask or that you would want to let people know about this, uh, the new record? Oh, let's see. I'm not quite sure. Uh, Especially from a banjoistic point of view. Yeah, it's incredibly freeing to do something like that. I, I, I've always been a big fan of electric music, especially the, the consciousness revolution times of it, you know, Santana McLaughlin. I'm just a huge fan of that early 70s stuff, but there's a, just a whole palette of sounds on an electric instrument, as everyone knows, but I'm really happy I didn't constrain myself from going all the way down that yellow brick road uh, because it's a musical instrument after all. It's music, you know. I've had, that's why the first track on there is called The Devil You Know, Why Don't You Just Play Guitar? Right. Because I was playing this for people before I released it, and they're like, why didn't you just play guitar? And we recorded, or we played several shows, several performances after the recording in New Orleans. Oh, wow. Uh, I eventually moved there like a year after we did the recording, and I lived there for eight months, and we played in this configuration the whole time I was there. And there would be 10 guitar players. Dave Brandrowski would bring every guitar player he knew to see us. And they'd all be scratching their chins and they'd be like, why don't you just play guitar? And I'd say, because <laughs> it's a banjo. Well, you could have just played guitar just as easily. And I'm like, why don't you close your eyes and listen to the music? How about you don't hear with your eyes, you hear with your ears, you know? And uh, so, you know, these guys, some of these guys were curmudgeon man. But it was, that's why, it's because of those guys' voices in my head that I almost didn't release the record, you know? Well, I'm glad you had, I'm glad you came to your senses, however it had to happen. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Me too, we'll see what happens. Yeah, but, right. But uh, I don't think the, I don't think we're going to be touring in this configuration anytime soon because the other guys are so busy. And I mean, uh, you know, to get... The music industry is a really interesting thing. It's it's almost left art to the wayside unless it's art the way someone says it needs to be to make money. And so I decided over COVID, I'm, I love playing on other people's stuff. I really do. I love when somebody gives me direction. I love when Jeremy Garrett calls me and says, I want you to play on these tracks and I want this one to be real mash and bluegrass, but I want on this song, I want you to play, you know, play crazy stuff. I want you to, I love that. I'm yeah. really good at that. But uh -huh. I've, I've had so many ideas in my head, riding in vans with other bands and like of what I wanted to do that I'm just gonna sit here and record and keep putting out all this music that I've wanted to do for a long time. And this is the only unprecedented one uh, that I foresee, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you never know. Well, great, man. Tell everyone what websites to go to to either download or order one of the CDs or to maybe even see some tour dates you know, in whatever configuration you got going. Yeah, so I'm releasing, we already have two tracks from this record out, Ryan Kavanaugh's Screams Electric. I'm releasing one every couple weeks, right? So we have three to go. I think the next one comes out this coming week um, and it's available on all digital platforms everything that sells mp3s apple itunes all that stuff and it's even on amazon and uh i might do more limited pressings of the cds but if you want to try to get a cd before they're all gone 
you can go to ryancavanaughbanjo.com forward slash merch. You just go to my website and go to the merch section and, and we'll get you one. And um, uh, I think that's about it. You, you can read a little bit about how the album came together on there and about the players. But the, I mean, I couldn't pass up playing with this all-star rhythm section and, you yeah. know, through all the vintage tube circuitry and, you know, just the opportunity oh, yeah. to do it was too fun to turn down. So, oh, it sounds real, sounds real fun. And uh, cool album art, too, by the way. That's worth looking up on your website just to kind of see what the cover looks like. It's a cool, like, print, I guess, is what it is. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was AI art. Oh, incredible. Yep. And, yeah, and it looks cool. We typed in um, mid century uh, communist electric banjo, I think, or, <laughs> or it was mid century. Uh, uh, I forget. We typed in something like that. We wanted it to look like, you know, f uh, a sort of callback to that era. They were using yeah. tie-dye then, but, you know, with all the stuff that was going around, you know, all the words that were being thrown around uh, over COVID, we were like, what the heck's going on? So AI spit out this like microphone looking thing that looked like Russian constructivist art with all the Russia... You know, everybody's like that. So, yeah, we thought that oh, would be fitting. And uh, you, you weren't getting quite enough banjo purist hate mail yet. You now you're the <laughs> communist banjo banjo player. <laughs> oh, great! Player. You're yeah. in for it now, man. I I just love how it all came together, and I hope everybody enjoys the listen. It's um, it, like I said, we made this one for the the old hippies. Those I wouldn't have a career if it weren't for old hippies. I mean, John McLaughlin calls himself one. And, uh, oh, yeah. you know, they were the people throwing money at me uh, when I took the stage at 18 years old with an electric banjo. So I really appreciate all they do. And the world needs old hippies. Couldn't agree more. And that's a great <laughs> place to uh, to end things with that with that uh, final thought there. So, hey, thanks again for your time and, and sharing your thoughts on the album. Everyone should go listen to it. It's really cool stuff. Thanks, Keith. going to do it for this episode of the picky fingers banjo podcast thank you so much for listening the sound clips you heard in this episode were screams electric part two by ryan kavanaugh potato farmer by jeremy garrett the devil you know why don't you just play guitar triple loser and then two clips from snake pit all by ryan kavanaugh electric dreams electric size by john mclaughlin and lizard brain by funk wrench blues Special thanks once again to the Hall of Honor patron of the show, that's Shane Benfield. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a Patreon supporter yourself. Email the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Everyone have a wonderful week, a wonderful rest of your spring, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>